time for the Vintage Truth Podcast with best-selling author and Bible teacher, Jeff Kinley. Well, good morning. Happy Monday to you and welcome to the Vintage Truth Podcast. I'm talking through a series on discipleship. Uh, What does it mean? What does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to call yourself as a Christian in these days that we're living in? And, and really, originally, what did it mean for the first century Christians? You know, we talked about a couple of episodes ago that, that the word Christian is only mentioned three times in the whole New Testament, while disciple, the word disciple is mentioned some 275 times in the New Testament. And so if we want to know what it means to be a Christian then we need to find out what it means to be a disciple. And uh, that's what this series is all about, is just really re-examining discipleship from Scripture. And last time we looked at John chapter 6, where Jesus was um, sort of thinning out the crowds. He's thinning out the herd on purpose because people were following him basically because he was giving out free food and doing miracles. But once he started demanding something of them or talking to them about the cost of discipleship, all of a sudden, I mean, they're looking at their watches, you know, they're remembering they've got something in the oven. Oh gosh, I forgot to pick up my kid from school. I mean, they begin coming up with all kinds of excuses as to why they couldn't follow Jesus. And so it's really interesting to see how human nature has not changed is that when God makes demands of us, we suddenly find excuses as to why we can't follow him. And I want to continue on this whole thought of Christ and his calling to us as disciples. And this is really thick stuff here. This is stuff that messes with your life. It messes with my life, Uh, not just initially when I came to Christ, but it messes with me every day. And it's the idea of the, the demands of being a disciple of Christ. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 today and perhaps on Friday as well. Uh, I I have a feeling that we won't get uh, too far into this uh, in terms of completing it. But Jesus Christ begins to lay down some, uh, not just conditions for being a disciple, but more characteristics of those who are true disciples. To come to Christ, we believe in him. We put our trust in him. There's no work to do. There's no add-on thing to do. And we don't guarantee our salvation uh, by something that we do after that. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. But the kind of faith and the kind of trust that we have in him is the one that's ongoing. I mean, not that we don't have our ups and downs, but that we're moving in the same direction uh, for the most part of our lives. And so in Luke chapter 14, Christ once again It says in verse 25, now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them. Now, once again, Jesus is going to go completely counter cultural to modern day Christianity. Modern day Christianity is all about. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to tell you the secret to modern day Christianity. Here it is. Ready? How many people can we get inside this building that's modern christianity right there that's american christianity because we're going to put on a program we're going to put on a presentation and we want as many people to hear it as possible because it talks about jesus that's modern day christianity 
ancient Christianity, first century Christianity, authentic Christianity is Jesus Christ being presented to people and them knowing up front what it's going to cost them. And these are from the very lips of Jesus himself. So he turns to his, to, to his followers, these great multitudes who are literally following him. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and if he even does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, could Christ be any more hyperbolic than that? And so we need to unpack that for a moment. What in the world does it mean for us to hate our father and mother and our, our wife and our children? Now, in a parallel passage to this, and over in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, we see Matthew's interpretation of this, the way that he recorded it. And this is what uh, Jesus says there. He says, he said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Wow. He's uh, quoting, by the way, over in, um, in Micah, Micah 7, verse 6. Now watch this. Then he says this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this word hate does not literally mean to have emotional hate because he commands us to honor our father and mother. God does. So he's not contradicting himself. Okay. What he's saying is, is that the love that we have for him in pursuing him has to be so far greater than the love we have for our own family members, for the people that are closest to us in life, the people that we love the most, that the difference between those two loves almost look like hate because there's such a, a broad chasm between them. In other words, he's saying this, I want to be number one in your life. And number two, your wife, your husband, your kids, is so far down the list. I'm, I'm a big number one, Jesus says. And number two is just way on down the list. So think about this for a moment. How much do you love your kids? Man, I tell you what, I, when I became a father, I think I discovered what love really was. I mean, obviously I was married. I love my wife. But when I had kids, it's like opening up a door into a room of your house that you didn't even know really existed. And the capacity to love another human being from a father's perspective, was just unleashed in my mind, in my heart, and my spirit. I never dreamed it was possible to love a little something 
like I love those guys. And now they're all grown up and I love them even more now than I did then. And we have a fantastic relationship. But here's the deal. God says that my love for him has to surpass my love for human relationships. And I think part of that is the fact that we are dependent on on crafting love for other humans based on sight and sound and and feeling and touch and interaction and that kind of thing. And that's primarily physical. I mean, you know, we're in the physical world with our five senses is what I'm talking about here. But our relationship with God is primarily spiritual. It's not primarily physical. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear him. So it's a spiritual faith-based thing. And God says, that's the kind of love I want you to develop for me. And it's got to be more real to you than your love for your own family members. So he lays down this, this um, command, this demand of discipleship to love him. In fact, that's the greatest command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. And so that's the first thing he calls him. He says, hey, if you're not willing to let my love be in you and for you to love me more than anything else. He says, just go ahead and turn back now. What if you said that to people today? Well, they'd just, they'd just leave, wouldn't they? Because we've created, we've created and crafted a Christianity in our culture that is just nothing more than a spiritual buffet line. And these are things God offers you, and you can take them if you want to, and it'll enhance your life and that kind of thing. No, these are not offerings. God's not offering something. He's demanding something of us. He's the creator. He's the God of the universe. He's not giving us options. He's demanding that all men everywhere repent and believe in his son and follow his son. Those are the conditions. He sets the conditions, not us. Find out more about that later in this passage. Let's read on. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute. What in the world is that talking about? Well, Jesus is really just saying that, you know, if you're not willing to you know, have hard time being a Christian because that's what carrying your cross means, right? I got to carry this cross, right? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Jesus Christ is talking to a group of men who and, and people and women who understand what cross means. We don't understand what cross means here. We, it's a top of a church. It's something behind the preacher near the baptistry. It's on the front of the pulpit. It's hanging around someone's neck. That's what a cross is to us. It's something that we see with a robe draped over it at Easter, that kind of thing. A cross means nothing to our culture. But let me tell you what it meant to Jesus' culture. When Jesus was about 10 years old, there was a man by the name of Judas of Galilee and his followers. And those people revolted against the Roman government. They, they tried to, to, to overthrow the government. They tried to, to initiate this revolutionary, like, Antifa kind of thing, you know? I mean, they're rioting, that kind of thing, right? What did the Roman government do? Well, to make an example of these people, an example that would never be forgotten, a Roman general came through, a guy named Varus, V-A-R-U-S, and he crucified 
more than 2,000 Jews as punishment for this uprising. And he placed their crosses along the roadsides throughout Galilee. Every Jew carried the crossbeam. That's the, the thing that goes horizontally across. He carried his own crossbeam for his own execution as he marched to his death. It's like, it's like someone saying to you today, do you remember 9-11? Do you remember what happened then? Do, you know, some of you guys, remember the Kennedy assassination? You know, your grandparents would have remembered or your great-grandparents would have remembered Pearl Harbor. You know, these red-letter dates, do you remember the massacre in Las Vegas? Do you, I mean, these are things people remember, then they forget them, right? But in the Roman government during Jesus' day, people were being crucified all the time. And so Jesus brought to their mind this incident that was burned in the memory of Jews and used it as an illustration. So when he said to them, if you're not willing to take up a cross and follow me, then you can't be my disciple, he says. That's when the disciples realized that Jesus actually meant business about discipleship. That's when they knew that the coffee break was over, that it was time to get as serious as death about a relationship with God. I mean, they must be willing to die for him. They must be willing to take up their cross and follow wherever he leads, even if that leads to crucifixion. And you know, we can spiritualize this all we want, but that's a big deal. Their dedication to Jesus must be greater than their desire for self-preservation. What's going to happen in America when, when the persecution really starts to heat up? How many Christians will take up their cross? How many Christians will say, okay, bring it because I'm not denying my Lord? Are you willing to accept the pain, the persecution, and the shame that being a Christian will bring you in, a, in an increasingly dark, hostile, hateful, anti-Christian, satanically inspired society? Are you willing to do that? Jesus says that's one of the demands, to love me so much more than, than the greatest relationship that you have in this world that you be willing to take up your own cross and fall after me. And then Jesus says this, let me appeal to your mind for a second, Christ says. He says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? You want to build a project? Well, see if there's money in the bank, right? there's enough resources. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. How many Christians do you know that, that built the foundation, that had the foundation built for their spiritual life, for their Christian life, for their relationship with Jesus back in high school, back in college, but they're no longer living for Jesus today? They petered out they're laughing stocks, is what Jesus says, because they set out on a journey without f figuring out if there was going to be enough gas in the, in the tank. They began to build without 
seeing if they had the resources or, or if they were committed enough to see this thing through to the finish. You, you know them. I know them. And hey, maybe they'll come back, right? I was talking to my wife the other day about someone like that. I said, you know, maybe he'll, maybe he'll come to his senses and come back one day to Jesus or, or come to Jesus for the first time, truly. I don't know. But here's the deal. Christ says, don't start out unless you understand what I'm asking of you. When I became a Christian, I didn't understand a lot about Christianity. I didn't understand a whole lot about what it meant to follow Jesus as a 16-year-old. But here's what I did understand. I understood that my days were over and his days were beginning in my life. That's the, that's the main thing I really understood. When I cast myself at the foot of the cross, I just said, I surrender. I surrender. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in the very next verse. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he can send a delegation and ask terms of peace, saying, hey, we've only got 10,000 men here. You guys are about to slaughter us. Let's, let's negotiate a peace treaty here. So therefore... No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. So he, he's saying there, God is the, is the king with 20,000, and you're the king with 10,000. Negotiate a peace treaty with him. Surrender to him. Realize he is the stronger king in this battle. And it would be wise for you to go ahead and surrender now rather than to be conquered some other way. And so we have to understand there's a surrendering that goes on with discipleship. Now, it's, it's, a, it's an initial surrendering, but it's also an ongoing thing. Not that we get saved all the time. It's not that. But we begin to understand more about what it means to surrender in different areas of our life as he comes in and basically becomes the, the caretaker of our hearts. He's the king of our castle. And he starts telling us what to do. That's what the word Lord means means he's Lord, he's boss, he's over us, right? And he's saying here, you've got to give up all your own possessions to me. I, I hold the keys now. I, I want the deed. I want the deed, I want the keys, I want the passcodes, the password, I want everything, mine, because I'm God. Therefore, he says in verse 34, salt is good, but if the salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's what Christ is saying with that. He's saying that the thing that makes salt worth something is that it's salty. Unsalty salt isn't good for anything, really. I mean, you can throw it on the driveway, right, when it snows. But in his day... If it can't be used to preserve things, if it can't be used for flavor, it's not any good. It's like shaking white crystals out of a, a glass little shaker there, but it's not seasoning your food. Throw that stuff in the garbage. Christ is saying the thing that makes you set apart is the fact that you are a follower of me, the fact that you love me. That's what a disciple is. Someone who has great passion for Jesus, someone who is willing to die for him to give up the allegiance to his own life, his own direction, and simply follow Jesus Christ, someone who is willing to surrender all to Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. There's a death 
that occurs in salvation is a death to self. And that self is conquered. And Jesus comes in and he, he plants the flag. And he says, I claim this heart for the glory of God. Has that happened to you? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm telling you, Christ demands much of us. And you know, we live our lives unpacking more of what this means, don't we? We learn more as we go along. But those are some of the demands that Christ makes of our lives. And you know, those demands really open up a whole world of freedom, a whole world of liberty, a whole world of enjoyment. And as Jesus said in John 10, 10, of abundant life, we get, we do get, there are benefits. But hey, Christ wants us to be willing to surrender it all to him. And when he said those things to the crowd, I guarantee you, they didn't stand and applaud. They didn't give Jesus a standing O. They gave themselves a big O, no. Is this guy really for real? Yeah, he's for real. (laughs) Hey, we'll talk more about the demands of discipleship on Friday. I hope this has been an encouragement and a real challenge to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And may you walk with him all week long. You can do this by the power of his Holy Spirit. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Truth Podcast. Please subscribe and share with a friend. For more about Jeff's ministry, go to jeffkinley.com.